0: This is a new trend and it's in the opposite direction that we should want it to go in if we want nutritional security here, like three to four, like 3.6, I think, trillion in like global agricultural production value. I would say there's an equal amount of operational dysfunction at most farm operations as there is in startups. But like, how do you lower the barrier and like open the door and say, hey, technologists, innovators, smart, young people, like- we want you to work on these problems and there's opportunities to build profitable, impactful businesses.
1: Welcome everybody to Learn With Lowell. Today we're joined with Connie Bowen, co-founder of Farmhand Ventures, agricultural investor, maker of the ag tech toolkit yield lab institute board member rugby player and a dozen other accolades we discussed the many challenges and opportunities in this two3 to $3 trillion dollar market that is air culture if you're hungry to start a new profession apply your skills in a new arena or learn what it takes to put food on the table and this is the episode for you let's take care to learn about Connie air culture and the future of food on this episode of learn with Lowell I think one of the big things about America that most people don't know about is the fact that America was kind of the breadbasket of the world for the last couple hundred years. It's one of those things that we export to other regions for, you know, for political benefit, but also economic benefit. And so I'm curious with, um, with the, like climate change, and all these things going on, like how you would rate like America's health for um, the future in terms of just our, our economic, our economic agriculture regions. Um.
0: Okay, in terms of our economic agricultural regions, so there's, a, there's so many different dynamics at play here, so yeah. I think first you kind of have to break ag up, like you've mm-hmm. got the Midwest, which you just talked about, like the breadbasket, right, um, but really you've mostly got corn and beans too, um, and quite a bit of livestock, um, and that corn and, a lot of that is going to feed, fuel, that's kind of where it's going. Less to the food. Then you've got the food side. Most of that currently is in California. That's like 80 plus percent of your specialty crop. So fruit, veg, nut production. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that currently we continue to be a big exporter. There are, cert- there are a lot of products actually that we continue to deliver premium products in and Other countries I would say are catching up for sure, plus there are certain pressures here that are causing problems. I think the number one is labor. Most growers I talk to would agree with that.
1: At any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial and it tells Google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching. Thank you for everyone thus far who has commented, liked, subscribed, and told their friends.
0: Particular, especially on the specialty crop side. Um, it's a bit of a different issue in the Midwest where we've invested so much in, like, you know, high tech combines that are basically autonomous at this point. Um, and you should do a lot more with one guy. Um, but we, for the past two years, have actually been increasing global, or sorry, US imports of specialty crops for like the first time, I think maybe once we did it in the 60s, but don't quote me for sure on that, um, fact check me. Uh, but like this is this is a new trend and it's in the opposite direction that we should want it to go in if we want nutritional security here.
1: Yeah, I, I so I 100% agree with what you're saying. I, I like the fact that you cut off the rest of the world, America's fine, we can feed people. Like it's nice that we can export that type of stuff. I think one thing, which is, I think, it's really weird for people that I read about. Is and I think you alluded to this a minute ago. Uh, America will export quality products. Like we make really, really high quality stuff in America, um, and then we'll we'll export that high uh, high quality stuff to other people, and then we'll import third tier stuff in, like tobacco, for instance. I think like we be- we grow like the best tobacco in the world, but then we like, the companies will then send it to like some other country. And then they import third string tobacco and then make the the cigarettes that that no- most people eat. So like, mo- not eat smoke. And so, uh, that's that's one of those things that I think I would like I, I to just to just agree with you. I think uh, making it so that we have like that moat of exporting uh, things and and making us like resolute for whatever comes forward. I think that's a really great thing. Um, is there so like labor is really the big thing that's making that shift, or what's making that shift where we're being more of an importer? Because there's more than enough land. Like we have tons of land.
0: Yeah, we have tons of land. Um, yeah, I wish I that that feels like a little slight at the like control and environment ag vertical farms folks who are really feeling um a reality check and like market corrections right now. Um, so I guess one ag has to be huge, right? Like it has to be a huge industry because like we all eat. So like you've got nearly like three to four like three point six I think trillion in like global agricultural production value, and you don't want it to all be in one region because natural disasters happen, and they are happening at increasing rates, and all evidence would point towards that continue that rate to con- continue to accelerate. So you really want to have what I call regional crop economies, essentially, where you know, and let's look at like citrus for an example of this, like. Brazil is a huge exporter of citrus, as is Florida. Florida has been super hard hit with citrus greening, which has been around for a a minute now. Um, And so their crops have gone down. They're they're still producing quite a bit. That has led to California increasing a bit. Um, But I think for people as consumers who want to be able to have orange juice year round, um so we don't get scurvy um uh um we want to have optionality to import export from different places um but yeah like at the end of the day it is very good to be able to produce all of your necessary nutrition within your own boundaries if you have to um so i guess we're in a strong position
1: yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine in the middle, uh, who's a big fan of the Middle East, and I always tell him I'm a big fan of the Midwest, and that's why we get along because we all have middle and something we 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 appreciate. And uh, they're really they're really going ham on these vertical farms and all these other things. And uh, we were having this, like this fun debate about like why should America care about vertical farming if we have so much space, etc. Because um, we have a little bit more, and it's been it's been a really long time too. I think this is like something that. Like Americans don't appreciate because it's been a really long time since we had a famine in America like I think China views agriculture much more seriously than America does because we haven't had a a famine in a while I feel like we've kind of gotten ignorant the fact like agriculture is a huge part of our of our economy and it's something that we do as like a soft power thing for the rest of the world and you know feeding people like if some if you're like feeding your neighbor that neighbors gonna be real nice to you you know like if you're like even if the yeah. the neighbor's paying for it he's like well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna like walk my dog on his property and like take a poop or something like they're gonna be a little nicer uh so there's all these benefits uh but there's like unique challenges i think to america given the fact that we have the land um but then it's like how do you innovate when there are i think when i was when i was in high school they were saying that over from 2010 to 2020, about 50% of mom and pop farmers were gonna retire well, now we're in the 2020s, So I imagine that trends even worse. Yeah. And I always wonder, like, how? How are we? How are people supposed to innovate in a sector that seems quite saturated with like these big, large organizations?
0: Yeah, okay, couple things that I also totally didn't answer your other point on labor. Mm-hmm. So like, labor is a factor. In yep. the decrease in labor intensive crops, which tend to be the stuff we eat, um, as is drought, I would say that is a major concern from a California standpoint, because like we just had like a freakish rain season, like we're gonna kind of not think too hard about it for a year, and then there'll be a problem again, probably, Um, you know, give or take. Um. That's one of the key and, you know, that's one. that's one of the difference between the middle Midwest and the Middle East. Um, like that's one of the arguments, too, for a circular kind of vertical farm containerized grow system. It can be more resource efficient and you can recirculate stuff. And like personally, I actually got into ag tech, like building um like aeroponic food computer systems. So like just small, fully containerized, you know, environments that you can control all the parameters from from the cloud. Um, and so I think there can be a, there is a role in certain, in specific contexts, and even, and that might be a crop, that might be, it's a blend of, of variables that sets the context. Um, and I think it is probable that in the U.S., we continue to produce a vast majority of our, certainly calories, but I'm going to say nutrients too, um, outdoors. I think there's vertical farms, like controlled environment. And then there's also like greenhouses, high-tech greenhouses, like Dutch greenhouses, all the way down to like polytunnels. Those will increase, especially in the context of climate volatility. You want some degree of controlled environment because like in a world where you have no control over your environment, the more you can obtain the better. Um, But yeah, I don't, that's like a, a key difference I guess but the one other thing I was going to throw out is like while we haven't had any famines here we do have a major nutrient nutritional problem um and like it's interesting like I live in St. Louis and like I can go to certain parts of town in 2023 and there's not fresh produce available at the store that is nearby for that neighborhood and so like the I didn't realize this when I was younger, how stark, I think, the kind of contrast between, you know, like I grew up with like a health nut kind of suburban mom. Um, And like you, we have a major nutritional access problem here. And that gets, you know, we could get way in the weeds of like why exactly that is, but it, it won't be solved by farmers alone. But I think that one thing we need to do to alleviate it is, Increase access and affordability of fresh produce as opposed to highly processed foods.
1: Um so yeah. Do you see uh those types of uh foodstuffs like getting to that price point being like milk where and like I think the I think from like the twenties to the 70s, we started subsidizing milk a lot so people could afford it so that like kids wouldn't have bowed limbs and like we could have soldiers. It was like it actually was a defensive thing. Like a defense thing because like people kept showing up and going being 4f because they didn't have like the physical attributes we needed to like for them to fight um do you see for us to have to meet that requirement some level of subsidy or regulation going in there to allow local growers to produce what we need so we don't have like that nutrient um desert or or for lack of a word um in theory
0: that would be an interesting solution. in theory that could be part of the solution Mm i i mean we're in a farm bill theoretically a farm bill year my money is on it actually next year being a farm bill year um and the farm bill is like 80 percent plus of the budget for it goes towards actually like food benefits like snap is one of the largest program largest budget items in it um and then the other component goes really primarily to like row crop commodities and then there's like not there's not a heck of a lot going on there for especially crops um so you could start to fix that i think that the thing that is true though i and you were talking a little bit about like um farm ownership consolidation i guess mm-hmm. um what's really ha- there's a great book on this that i like highly recommend to everyone it's or related to this called farms and other f words by sarah mock um, but like there's, isn't a great name? There's, it a great name? Uh, but there's like a... Farms are businesses, right? Like every farm yeah. is a business. So ultimately it's about making money. And what is different about farms than other businesses is like the government can't afford to let too many of them go out of business um, or too much acreage go out of production, right? Um, and so... But we run, we do this weird thing where like in this country, well, in a lot of places where we kind of just like trust farmers and we think of farmers as this like special class of good citizen, which is like, there are a lot of great farmers. So that's cool. And also there are like some bad farmers Um, and under every farm operation, you know, you've got a hierarchy, it's a business. Um, So you've got this group of different people needed to do these different tasks and um, I would say in general, in my experience, there is more, well, I don't know. I would say there's an equal amount of operational dysfunction at most farm operations as there is in startups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like that's saying something. Um, <laughs> and so I think, yeah, I don't know. I like, think that's a, that is like a major, 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 major factor that goes that needs to be thought about because specialty crops on a per acre basis way more profitable than row crops way more profitable but they also require more work so you actually usually need a bigger team and more people so you've got a lot of these like lone cowboy vibes farmers and like they don't want that kind of a staff under them they don't want to have to like interact they like to sell a commodity because they don't want to have to interact and negotiate and market and say hey restaurant, food, business, whatever. Like I want to sell you, even if we do something that's not, I want to sell you, you know, organic peaches and let's barter over a price. Like that's a, that is a huge drain on resources for any farm operation. And it's not always a task people want to do if they have access to markets. Um, So there's an incentive there for most farm operators and particularly competitive ones to, change what they produce. And that can, I'm gonna like even include ecosystem service stuff in there. You talk about like carbon markets and stuff. But making it easier and more obvious about how, why, how and why farms should connect to different market opportunities, that's like the really hard part. And so yeah, a government intervention could serve to do that. Um but in absence of that, nothing changes.
1: It's interesting. I wouldn't have uh, thought about. It's been a while since I've been inside a farm from like a business standpoint, and so the idea that they're run as efficiently as a startup makes me see a lot of opportunity for efficient, like just streamlining things. um If that you know, like, ho- hopefully not too extreme, because that that's pretty pretty terrible. If anyone's ever worked at a startup, just imagine like chaos and like well, like thirty percent inefficiency. I'd say is probably like pretty pretty normal like they, they go fast at but they least. like waste a lot yeah at
0: least well and then like take that and put that in a rural place right mm-hmm. so like you've got no oversight like there's no oversight period so you've got crazy things happening on farms that also like then you get into like the socioeconomic political fabric of things like it's hard i focus a lot on labor almost every country The unskilled, and I'm air quoting, which I guess you can't see on a podcast, but, like, because I don't, there's no such thing as unskilled labor, one. And in particular, in agricultural labor, my experience working with folks has been that they're, like, unbelievably good at their jobs, actually. Um, And, But most of that unskilled, lower-level work is done, you know, for minimum wage, and it's done by folks who have varying levels of citizenship rights yeah. and so that leaves a really vulnerable population who doesn't know what their rights are and mo- again there are a ton of amazing farms who do a phenomenal job of taking care of their people and also there are those that don't <laughs> um yeah. and you, the way that the like labor system in the u.s works um is really big professional operations like you think of like uh any of the brands you see in the grocery store for your, like, lettuce, right? Um, they tend to have folks, generally tend to have folks in-house working for them. Um, but the more medium guys tend to use farm labor contractors, which technically is, like, a federally registered thing, but it's basically a simple LLC that typically is run by a former farm laborer who just kind of was like, okay, like, I could supervise people, take a cut, and make more money. Um, and, like, I've, I have personally done some, like, farm management in Oregon, so, like, I've dealt with FLCs, and there's a lot of dishonest stuff going down there. They tend not to be super professional. There's a lot of instances where workers don't get paid. And the reason you set this up, the reason it's set up this way is kind of a liability shield, right? Because you've got this, like, okay, these folks said they're, you know, they they signed their W-9, but maybe they're not actually citizens. And so like we, you know, you don't want to be vulnerable to that um, on the farm employer end. Um, so this is part of the like take that away. And it's it's a it's a middleman system that I think could be leveraged through appropriate competition to improve the situation. But currently, I would say usually the opposite <laughs> is mm-hmm. happening. Um,
1: I was, I was recently, I think it was on Frontline or Dateline, was doing a series about uh, human trafficking and how agriculture is one of the big up-and-coming human trafficking sectors, and like Tyson's Chicken got busted, having like a whole like compound for people that they would bus up and then as soon as like Payday came around, it's like, hey look, ICE! We found some <laughs> not licensed people. It's like, I feel like I mean, the, the, the punishments for doing crap like that to people should be much higher because clearly the, the incentive is to the corporation to take advantage of people when they're doing that um when you when you like when you go towards like minimum wage or like trying to get like the most from people like that uh it seems like what you're saying like there's just ripe for abuse i always feel i always wonder like how can you take like the especially crops we were talking about a minute ago that are very profitable uh is there a way to like have like uh in startups for instance it's, it's very common for people to have like equity stakes or some type of like profit sharing like imagine how people would work if they had some form of that if they, ha- if they had some type of buy in and they knew, like, every time I pick something, this is a little bit more for my family, or a little bit more for m- my friend, like, we're all working together, etc like that. um Instead of thinking, how can I screw someone over? I think, how can you empower people to get the most? I feel like one would, I always wish, I, like, there's no ethical way to study this, right? Because if you, if you, it's not like you're like, oh, yeah, sure, you go with like human traffic over there, and I'll do the right things over here, we can compare them at the end of the year. But there's no way you do that, I guess, so you'd have to like, like, see how one works, and the rest do the right thing and see, like, what the outcome would be. Um, but human trafficking is also, yeah, I was reading about that. It's terrible. Super
0: embedded in ad. Well, and this is where, like, honestly, I'm like, especially like you, even from like an environmental standpoint, right? Like, long supply chains are like not the problem. Like mm-hmm. in refrigerated specific use cases, yeah, sure. But like from a climate standpoint, you should grow stuff. I think in the regions that are optimal for that particular thing, and then export it. I think that's fine get really good at it, get efficient. I don't think monoculture to a certain degree is inherently that problematic, actually. Mm. Um, And I think it's going to take us a real long time to get towards industrial level production that is more diversified at scale. Um, Again, in an economically feasible way. But like the thing that I do think is really that I value as a consumer about American produced food is we do re- relatively speaking have pretty good oversight and protections of workers. I would say there's room definitely room to improve. Um but again generally speaking we do a pretty good job. Um now what's interesting about the like the way the labor market is and has been for years is the supply so the worker supply side is is the scarce part. If you are willing to do farm labor, or this is where like FLCs could be competitive. If you are an excellent, reputable FLC that every day that someone calls you and you say, you know, I'll send 50 guys to a blueberry harvest, like you send those guys and they show up on time and you send an invoice in from your QuickBooks account, like that would be amazing, different. No one does that. That's not handwritten, you know? (laughs) And like you, the pounds, the invoice, the pounds picked invoiced lines up with the pounds sold of blueberries, which doesn't always happen. Um, Just doing honest business, honestly, (laughs) like you are going to, and you pay your people on time every time, people are going to work for you. Mm -hmm. Like, that's kind of how this environment works. So in a way, you've got a real time experiment going on Mm -hmm. of... Like, okay, if we do this the right way versus the wrong way. Um, and the other really big piece of this that, like, we haven't talked about, I don't know if you've read about it, is, like, you know about, like, H-2A? Um,
1: no. What's H-2A?
0: Um, so it's kind of like the Band-Aid program for our lack of agricultural workforce. Uh, there's, like, H-2A and H-2A. It's a visa program. Um, hmm. But it essentially says, okay, we will bring in foreign seasonal workers under the H-2A program, uh, you have to provide those workers. There's like a higher minimum wage set for that. And that ends up dragging up the minimum, the like pragmatic minimum wage for everybody else. It's like adverse wage rate, but um, without getting into like wonky acronyms and stuff, essentially most farms now rely on H-2A labor. They have to provide that labor with transportation, housing, um, so like they're expen they're already more expensive than local minimum wage. And then you've got these uh on top services, and they tend to be really great, like really valuable members of the operation, like strong workers. Um, and they're there for you know, they they come up, they work for part of the season, they go back down. Historically, much of this program has come from Mexico. Um, that continues to be pretty true, but in different regions, like we've got Uh, Like in the Mid-South, you see a lot of um, South Africans now um, coming in. Mm. So it varies a little bit. Um, But like year over year over year, H2A labor and reliance has climbed and it's really expensive for farm operators. And I would say it's a problem if you have a job that even through different kind of economic things that are happening in terms of employment rates or unemployment rates, right? People won't do that job locally who could do literally anything else. So I, yeah, I mean, this is like what I focus on at farm adventures is like, how can we make it work both for the farm operators who have to run a business and make money in usually a commodity context. So like they've got a capped upside and how can we make it so that people want to work on farms at every level? And like, I, that's, that has, we have to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And like the historic solve has been uh, pretty bad. Like slavery is kind of the history of agriculture. So um, the problem will get solved, but it might be by turning another eye, you know, human trafficking. So like, I I think there are opportunities to solve that in more ethical ways.
1: Yeah. I would think so, especially with the modern technology that we—I think you referenced at the beginning—where in the Midwest things are well automated. So you could have just people come up with automated machines and just beast out something great. You, sh- I think, with all that con- in conjunction, would make it so that human trafficking would be um, less prevalent. Then again, I-, I generally think, like you said earlier, uh, if you want to be like if you want to be successful, uh, do the opposite of evil things, and things will work out. I, I think, like, if you want people to work well. Have you thought about treating them well if you you you, this evil idea like i i had a friend who was like always tried stealing like just like being evil in negotiations i said you know people see you doing that you know like i don't do business with you like there's a reason for this you need to stop doing it he's like well you need to get the best deals like there's a there's a a point where the deal uh is just pissing the person off and they'll use you and get rid of you you know it's like all your deals are like one-offs they never talk to you again and then like anyone even associated with them don't talk to you anymore um if you want to do well in business i feel like if you just selfishly do the right things you things will work out for you it's like the, the evil thing you can do is be a not evil person yeah.
0: sure well uh, hopefully you're not using that to evil ends though hopefully you're like motivated also altruistic yes. internally. Mean, uh but yeah I I know I, I agree it's kind of uh, it's astonishing that like it seems like a a good long-term strategy to yeah um uh, yeah. yeah totally
1: well, I think most people see, like, a Steve Jobs type person. And they think, oh, I'm going to go around and yell at my, my team. Or I'm going to try and take advantage of here or there. And I think that people like that are kind of the outlier. And even Steve Jobs wasn't terrible all the time. Um, but I, I know people who think that, like, that's a good business plan. To be, like, this evil capitalist, you know, uh, imagine, like, most evil capitalist person can think of, like, they think that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but But in terms of addressing this concern directly getting people to want to do farm work. Um, What are some of the strategies that you have envisioned and tested out that you've liked so far?
0: Yeah, I mean, I live in tech world, right? So, and there's limitations on that because honestly, I think one of the most obvious solutions to this is actually kind of like operational consulting for farms, get farmers to be equipped with management skills. Like, Mm. I know that's like a very non-tech fix and you know company culture turns out to move the needle on attracting and retaining employees um so like i would say that's one i'm doing less on that i am focused more on the like deeper tech side of things so 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 like you've got like i said like the like soy and corn We have done, we have poured so many, so much resources into those crops that, which is great. Like they're incredibly efficient to produce. They're relatively easy to produce. The equipment and the insurance part, like the entire wraparound stuff that exists for them makes them relatively easy to farm. Now, farming is not easy to be clear, but like, relatively speaking there you can do it um that same investment has not gone into literally any other crops (laughs) maybe rice a little bit um but like even even there like it's not quite as much dollars amounts um so somehow we need to drive more investment towards these other crops but that's hard to do because now when you look at the proportion of acreage and overall value of each individual crop and you're a cap, you know, you're trying to make money and venture capital or or really anything, you're like, well, this market is so much bigger. I'd have so many more stressful, my stressful market's way bigger if I do corn and beans. So like, there's a lot of good reasons to focus on keep making the current big thing bigger. So uh, the puzzle that like I'm trying to solve for is okay. How can we align resources and shareholders such that we are supporting the the like badly needed solutions for these other types of production systems? I'll even say because like t- I would actually, I, people in like regenerative ag would get. Uh, I don't want to like regenerative ag is like a loosely defined thing right now, mm-hmm. or it's strictly defined by certain groups. But anyway, I would kind of lump regenerative, diversified alternative systems. I'm going to lump it all over in this like specialty crop category right now um, because it's all stuff that has received relatively little investment and in resourcing and research and all that stuff. Right. And so but the problem is that like there's like not there are very few solutions that would make this problem better that fit all of the stuff in that group you actually have to break it down further it ends up being a super fragmented market so yeah. you have to be really and like in startup world you see a lot of i see a lot of companies that will like show up with a robot or whatever and they'll be like my addressable market size is you know the global specialty crop market And I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so. I don't think that your solution is going to work both for almonds and romaine. I just don't think so. Um, And, you know, like almonds grow on trees, and it's just the like, there's just so much variance. Um, So I think that the way that we can actually, I think that a lot of the solutions that would make agricultural work the future of work on farms really more appealing, aka less hard and less grueling, are probably not like unicorn type companies. They're not going to be billion dollar plus potential, but they are, and they're also probably going to be regionally specific to a certain extent, or at least have to have some semblance of regional specificity. And like there are business models that you can do that with. Um, And so we have to figure out those business models and financing models to enable that. Because like all the technical stuff, we can figure that out. Like a lot of this stuff is not rocket science, Mm -hmm. but it's a resourcing problem more than anything. And it's I think also in America, fewer than one percent of Americans, and that number is diminishing, have any exposure to agricultural production. So like, how do you lower the barrier and like open the door and say, hey, technologists, innovators, smart young people, like we want you to work on these problems, and there's opportunities to build profitable, impactful businesses that solve for these specific problems. Um, so like we have to get more people in ag at kind of like every component of it to solve.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's really a complex problem. I th- I, I was I was just thinking like, where would I go to get people like that? And I feel like if you were to go to like high school lunchrooms and you said, "Is do you want to keep eating this? Because uh, a lot of that stuff, I think a lot of it's not made in America and it's terrible. It's not good for you when i was in high school at least it looked like you know prison food and so uh maybe like making like a regulation type thing i don't know if you've ever seen like meals it made for kids in like different uh regions like italy's food looks amazing for what they give uh you know uh uh their students and so if if there was a requirement where that food had to come from america and you have specialty crops you know that balanced meal from it you have a, an immediate demand there that needs to be supplied if it, you also had a requirement that it had to come from america that's one thing i've always been kind of weird about where we have a requirement or we'll pay someone something that benefits like a different country when it's designed like in, in principle for america but because it's like something like squir- like a uh, I i think one example is um like ranchers how like some people in south america can like label their beef as made in america because they move yeah. the beef to america and then process right. it and it's like that's not really that's not really like made in america that's like yeah. sourced and, and yeah. you was know, like a little yeah, it's like yeah. a little unfair because you're getting like breaks and stuff regulations and stuff in that way and so i've always like it's just as like a an easy win like go to those high schools like hey this sucks you know and we're working to change legislation so they have to have these requirements but we need people to build the you know to grow these things yeah and guess what you can have money you feel know, like you'll do a good job i feel like that if i was a high school student and i was looking at that slop and you said i can make money and i can not be eating slop if you know everyone working together like that would probably get me pretty excited
0: yeah, I mean, okay. Couple things there. One, the one thing I wanted. So, do you know what the most consumed fruit is in America?
1: No, I would. I would be able to guess
0: Bananas. Oh, really?
1: Wow, that's a not- You think Can we you grow, grow any
0: bananas in America?
1: Couple no, I don't think so.
0: Like, couple in Hawaii, and that's about it. None. So, so like, there are a lot of things that I think we do want to, and like, also like, if you want produce during the winter in most places certainly where you and I live then you better hope it's coming from somewhere else um so yeah I just would like push back a little on the like purely American yeah. side but one interest there are a couple of interesting programs actually and like this was one of the some of the like corrective actions that were like attempted during COVID actually have I think help to move the needle on uh what i would call like institutional purchasers which includes schools Mm. and cafeterias um and like towards regional production producers right um and so and that's great because like where i live in st louis there's not very much specialty crop production around here It's, it's corn and beans and beef um and like, there's a little bit, but there's not much. And there could be more. Like, we actually, we have, Southern Missouri has pretty good conditions. We could be growing more specialty crops here. And we have a couple of cities around there, too. Like, there would could be market access. But financing that transition, because if you think about a lot of fruits grow on trees, and that's not a cheap thing to install, I'm going to say. Um, it's not, a, it, it takes time to get to harvest. And then again, you need to have that workforce. They cost money. Um, So I think that some of these like purchasing programs and forward contracting stuff can be really impactful. Um, And you're starting, you are starting to see more like food as medicine prescription box stuff being federally funded. And you're starting to see more school lunch stuff also be either state or federal or federal through state kind of funded stuff too. Um, It's the thing, Okay, there's an interesting project that I worked on I when I, I used to work with Ag Launch um, in Memphis, and they are continuing to do this work with um, Foundation for Food and Ag Research, FAR, um, on this, like, open market consortium, which basically, the intent of which was to connect small, I call them medium growers, medium, um, so, like, small and medium growers, and with a... a with, an emphasis really on underrepresented producers and largely black producers were in the Delta Mid South region um, with institutional purchasers. And the way this is where, like, so the way that the system worked, we created a smart, a blockchain based smart contract system. And the goal was kind of to do a couple different things. So, one, for the producers, the farmers, and the buyers to try to mitigate the dual risk that exists in any specialty crop transaction. So like today, if I'm growing peaches and you own a grocery store, there's a good chance that we're doing kind of a handshake agreement. <laughs> like you've got like a read, like a, you know, kind of bougie grocery store. Like I've, I have, I've had little transactions like this go down with like, brands you would recognize, so I don't want to throw anyone on the, under the bus, but like if you do a handshake agreement and you say, and they say, okay, yeah, I'm going to buy your peaches that you're transitioning to organic and you're in year two of a three-year transition. So they're not USDA certified, but I want to encourage that behavior. So I'm going to offer you a slight premium. And then I say, great, I'll grow these peaches for you. And then you go, then you change your mind. Like you can just change your mind and similarly i might find someone who will pay me more and then i then you don't have any features this year and like mm-hmm. it's it's this dual contractual risk is like a huge issue actually but then the reason that that this open market consortium project is built on the blockchain even though there might be cheaper technical ways to do this i suspect but there also is this level of price transparency that exists in commodity markets that, again, makes it really easy to operate. Like you can go on a million different apps right now and figure out your regional basis points to sell your bean and coin. Like it's very easy. You can play the market. It's not uh, easy, but it's easy to find the information and you can play the markets, right? Whereas with specialty crops and particularly non-commodity specialty crops. So like you can sell your peaches as peaches or you can sell them as organic, regenerative, female owned farm produce right whatever special attribute but it's right now there's so much opaqueness in that market there's no way besides like hearsay to understand like okay if i grow i grow peaches in st louis city which would be an interesting thing to do but like i'm just like on a specific county right and they and i you know i if if i could get market information that said hey i could get a 30% premium to sell them as organic and another 10% for it to be female owned farm, then like, I am gonna be able to say, okay, I'm I'm gonna do those things so that mm-hmm. I can pull that premium. And that doesn't exist right now. And that that data doesn't exist right now. So it's really hard to make good decisions as a producer about what you should grow and how yeah. you should market it.
1: Is it a part of what you're working on or intend to work on is making that data marketplace? Like like I imagine like an like Amazon but with data instead of products. Well, I guess it would just be Amazon. You could have products on there, and like at people market, I guess. Because yeah, you have I like the backward, you have the analytics side of it. So it's kinda like Amazon.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. I mean, I'm not I haven't I'm not working on this project anymore. It would be mm-hmm. interesting to chat with um the guys still working on it. But I think the idea would be that yeah, like the interaction the user interaction component. So like who would presumably maybe be the producer, maybe it's a middleman actually, because you do need to have like fresh produce, storage and distribution. So maybe that's a role that a co-op could play or something, um, or a food kind of pantry or a food hub. Um, So maybe there's a middleman that ends up being kind of the customer that like peruses things and says, hey, this is what we want. And they do the forward contracting. and then resell direct to consumer or something. Um, But I, the idea would be to like, start to aggregate it and then figure out how to disseminate it because like, Mm -hmm. but it gets really tricky because like, if you are the sole large, relatively large producer of some niche specialty crop in your region, odds are very good that you're getting a great price for your stuff. Cause you're the only show in town and there is a premium for local and grocery stores do want to carry it for the most part. And so you don't really want the guy next door to know that he could get in on this. Cause that's going to dip your margins. So right. like there's farmers are competitors too. And also we didn't get into the like land ownership thing, but like, that's also where it's like, you can start to reverse engineer how much your neighbor's making or not. And like buy them out at the right time, kind of or undercut him and go to the a land, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of competitive dynamics between farms as well that make it even harder to get this data.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. Yeah. It's not, there's no real incentive. It, it sounds like there's actually quite a lot of disincentive for, for that type of system to exist. Um, Cause you know, it could, it only takes one unscrupulous person to like ruin, I guess like one apple ruins the batch type of thing. Um, well, uh, just want to touch back on the labor issue for a second. The as unions are more and more uh, in the news, do you see anything like that, like a union going into the agriculture place to um make sure there's like people are taken care of, it being something that would help alleviate those concerns and, and create something, or uh, or how do you see like, do you think unions have a place agriculture in, in, in a in a, in the future? Well,
0: this is such a politically loaded question for agriculture, um. My bad. They're not, no, well, they're uh, they're essentially illegal. Like you can't have farm worker unionization now. There's an interesting thing happening, and like I wish I had all the details of this so I could speak more intelligently. There's an interesting yeah. thing happen in in New York State right now where they have something got changed legally, and it has enabled for like UFW United Farm Workers is like kind of like the OG like. Cesar Chavez right like the kind of like farm worker rights group um and they've really been on the decline in terms of efficacy and impact but now they're on the in they're going up again and it's because there's been you know farm farms have combated directly like they don't want to pay people more actually which makes sense when you look at a budget um it's a really hard problem to solve because like you can am- you can empathize with both sides of this equation, right? Um, but no, the agricultural industry has effectively pre- prevented that from happening. And in New York, there have been, like, I think, five new, I don't know if it's technically unions or something like Union light. But there's some new kind of, I'll send you like a civil eats article that you can drop in, I think it was civil eats. I'll send you an article that you can drop in the comments after this for follow up on it, because like, Mm -hmm. yeah, there could absolutely be a role for something like that. But the thing that's interesting that is happening actually, again, politically is like, and you know, this is a political hot potato, and this is why no one talks about agricultural labor. Um, And I feel like it's worth talking about. So if I put my foot in my mouth, I put my foot in my mouth, you know? Um, but there's agriculture also has overtime exemption in most states. So you do not, you know, normally if you have workers, hourly workers who work more than 40 hours, then you're getting time and a half. Um, California, which again, most of our specialty crops, most of our agricultural workforce, doesn't have overtime exemption anymore. Oregon, Colorado, New York, I believe Pennsylvania. Um, There's like two others, but like we're increasingly in liberal leaning states eliminating that. And it's interesting because like, I, I am a pretty progressive person. Like I very much believe in living wages. And because ag is seasonal, the way that like that, Annual income works historically has been, you know, it's super lumpy. When you're in season, you make a ton of money and then you go home. But now, because of the remote, so like in a way, progressive politics have gotten out in front of something they don't quite understand, I think. And so, you know, one would think, okay, the consequence of this must be that we're going to now farm workers will make more money, right? That's good. That would be the goal. But actually the consequence of it is that farms say, okay, well, you're only working 40 hours this week and we'll figure out, we'll figure it out with that content. Like that's, that's Mm -hmm. actually the reality of how it's being implemented. And so that's like a huge problem because you hamstring farms and you hamstring workers. It makes it even less appealing to work in agriculture because now your net annual income potential is lower. So like, I don't know, I don't have, it's a really, again, it's a really hard problem and I don't really know how to solve it. There's some like, you could do some high level subsidy stuff, I guess that would kind of fix it for a minute. But like, yeah, I, it's, it's a complicated, complicated problem.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. I wouldn't have, uh, you, technically they, sh- they should be getting paid more, but because of it, you know it makes sense the business is like well i'm just gonna cap you up 40 and then you know hire more like scalping in that way um so then they they get more there's that like uh in tech there's that uh like the mythical man month i think is the the book where it's like more people on a project don't solve the project faster uh but i guess in labor if you added more pal- parallelism with more people i guess technically you could get more done with the same amount of hours because you just like have them start on the other side of the field or something so i, I guess there is like a local maximum in terms of, like, yeah, I was people... gonna say I,
0: there's definitely a local maximum because, like, right now we're at a point where it's like you're just like starving for oxygen and like manpower, and so it's like no one can be no like you. You're picking whatever you can get, so you've got some hustlers and some, and like it gets even more. This gets even more complicated because like a lot of again, specialty crop stuff, payments aren't hourly. Actually, they're piece rate, so they're based. You get paid for what you pick, essentially. Mm. And so that can be good. That can lead to a lot higher payments. Uh, And then like you still have the minimum wage. So you still have to pay people the minimum wage. Um, But like what ends up happening is like apples and cherries are grown in the same regions. Right. And so when it's, Oh, am I going to get this right? When it, when cherry harvest, Oh, I'm going to flip this. perhaps. anyway, let's, no one really cares i guess except for me that i feel like i've been <laughs> right. but like if if you need to do cherry harvest during the same time that you need to do apple thinning cherry harvest is going to be paid per pound pick and so you have if you're a laborer in that region you have way higher earning potential at cherry harvest And so while you would normally be down to do the apple thinning, just like you can't be two places at once. So now apple thinning, while it's a smaller uh, proportion of like the overall labor use on an, in apple production, it's actually almost a more acute problem because you don't like the people that you usually have aren't available then. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, and, like, you kind of have to, like, on a regional basis, balance all of that. Because we used to have, like, a super seasonal migrant, like, migrant seasonal workforce. And like, I think people still think that is what kind of, like, ag work is. But, like, that's not really how it works in the U.S. anymore. Um, like, that's, you know, you used to go, like, Florida and up and around. And, like, that's not that's not how it works anymore. People tend to be pretty stationary these days. Ex- with the exception of, again, like, the H-2A workforce, which is is just
1: like binary migratory i guess mm-hmm. it's really interesting i would i would not it, that's what's really cool about having people like you on who's like who's more like who can go in depth on all these different fields i grew up on a farm uh, i was in 4-h and all these things but it's like uh once once you take like one step out of it it takes a lot of work to get back into it in, in my opinion because uh you know it's like they don't know you as well like I, I used to just walk on anyone's farm that i wanted because i knew everyone in like the, the yeah. neighboring uh like 100, 100 miles and now it's just like I, I wouldn't do that because like they don't know if i'm like you know some bad person or whatever um and i miss it i miss just like walking on someone's farm and seeing what they're doing and then offer suggestions or just hearing how they you know do their crops or you know work out work with the horses or whatever which is a really nice thing to do like most people are very down for that yeah I was uh, gonna say that, honestly
0: you probably wouldn't have problems i do like do i know the odd farmer who's got they got like dynamite mounted to his pump yeah so like maybe careful of that one but like yeah in general like i feel like they'll invite you for dinner probably
1: (laughs) Mm. well there's a i I was talking to my wife about this and i said you know if we if you want to go look at a farm let's just go make like bring a pie and say hey we really like the way your farm looks slide the pie across (laughs) is it okay if we walk it
0: i i I keep like bourbon in my truck uh like like that's the tip um yeah which is like another great yeah
1: uh, I didn't know about bourbon. I'll, I'll add it to yeah. my repertoire. No, whiskey, I thought pie, pie, work. pie would yeah. work.
0: Too. Pie would work too. It's just that, like, pie, you leave your pie in your trunk for too long. That's not going to go well.
1: That's true. That's true. <laughs> bourbon is pretty much good until the rapture. Um, yeah. <laughs> but So, la- labor is huge. It's very complex. um You're in St. Louis, but you also have partnerships with people out in California. Like, you're all over the place. Like, you're very, like, embedded. um Have you thought. I guess there there is that fun to it—the fact that there's so many different aspects that you can get into at one point in time. So that like maybe hyper focusing on like the St. Louis region or like your hometown or something like that wouldn't be like it could be, it could be still as complex. But I, I'm just imagining like a part of the fun of it is you can go from like cherry pickers in Wisconsin to almond growers in California, and then like the problem sets that you're seeing while dissimilar also have some level of overlap. So what you learn in one region can be applied to other regions.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, okay. Every problem, right. Like the more you zoom in on it, the more complex it becomes like, mm-hmm. you know, like I like, I feel like you can really only start a company in an area that you like, don't fully understand because like the more you know about a thing, the more you're like, Oh God, this is never going to work. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's super fun. I mean, I love being in this space and there's a lot of stuff that you can translate. Also, there's a lot of stuff that you can't directly translate you can only partially translate and like there just aren't cookie cutter models that work well like you can you can use the same template maybe as a starting point but in general and like even one of the companies i work with um is doing some stuff in blueberries um in peru and i literally farmed blueberries in oregon so like i Thought and I like I'm a nerd. Like I like I thought I knew a lot about blueberry production. Um and in Oregon, it's like high bush blueberries, blah, 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 blah. You can talk about it for a long time if you want. Um, uh, but in Peru, this huge blueberry producer is growing one enormous blueberries. They're like, they have this one blueberry they export to China that is legit, like I think a 2.2 millimeter so essentially an inch diameter, which is like insane to think about actually like that is a big blueberry um and then also like their bushes are younger and shorter they keep them shorter and they're harvested far more regularly like normal in Oregon blueberry harvest is like every- like two or three times a season you do it and like that they- you usually do your last go with like a mechanical shaker harvester thing um but there they're treating it more like strawberries where you're going multiple, t- like every, I think the cadence is seven days or something, but like a weekly harvest cadence year round, which is an, ins- is just like blew my mind. So all to say, I only know the little things that I know and I don't even know what I don't know. Um, And this gets to my point of like, this is really a fragmented market. So like this, this is, th- this is the hard thing. Like, there is a huge cost to scale technology between fields of one farm between farms of the same crop and then between farms of the same crop but in different regions like there's just so much variation there oftentimes that that and i'm not saying you can i mean i i literally like live and work in the space i believe you can make these economics work out to be quite profitable it's also really hard. You also need to know what you're doing to do it. You need to be
1: disciplined. I was re- I was reading today because I was you know freshening up on agriculture because it's been a while. Uh, but I, it was either something related to you or not. But I'm remembering that uh, there's someone who made like an Uber for farm equipment, and I think it was Africa, Hello,
0: and they're doctor. actually. Being,
1: uh, I think so, but they're I actually it's like know? very, yeah. I think it's like that's pretty. I think it's profitable or something where they just like they. Yeah. Uh, like i think that's one thing that is kind of odd when you have like a quarter million dollar plus piece of machinery and everyone around you has to buy a quarter million dollar plus piece of machinery uh that adds to like the capital cost that you have to to account for when you're running a business
0: yeah no totally hello tractor is a really cool business model and like there's sort of versions of it in other places too and like especially as you start so and this is the end where, like, you've got context-specific problems that you have to solve for. And, like, I really don't know anything in the – like, you know, I read a bit, but, like, that's not the same as experience. I really don't know anything about the African agricultural market mm-hmm. or anything but the North American market. Um, and so – and, like, i worked on a farm in France for a while, so I kind of feel like I know that a bit. Uh, but so, so – it's, yeah, you have to just be so contextually specific, but it's interesting in the, on the, like, Hello Tractor front, like, with this next generation of equipment, like, do we end up with, like, swarms of smaller robots and, like, or do we end up with, like, super specific use case stuff that, like, the only thing this robot can do is harvest an apple? Um And, like, if that's true, like, that better be either a super cheap robot um or or you're going to have to figure out some other kind of business model around it. And like the the thing that everyone talks about today is like robots as a service, which could be part of the solution, um, though I think kind of neglects to account for the fact that providing services, whether that's as like a farm labor contractor, like providing services to farms is not easy. Um, And it's geographically dispersed and there's all sorts of human elements that are very challenging um, plus not even accounting for like weather climate challenges. So like, yeah, I, it will be very, there I, I think one thing also that's like not people don't realize is a lot of people rent their stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there are a lot of great equipment rental companies. Like people rent their equipment in many contexts. So I think that's like an under sung part of the like ag equipment market.
1: Uh, i was uh looking into digging a hole for a reason i'll tell you off air but if you want but uh, i was looking to dig a hole and i could have like a team come out it costs like five grand to dig the hole or i can go to home depot and it costs like four dollars to like rent the yep. equipment i need and yep. then i get to have fun for an evening like people pay for that privilege to like <laughs> dig a hole uh with uh farm equipment there's like whole si- uh, industries on this so i was like, yeah why not i'll just dig the hole myself um yep. so, yeah, even in uh like just a home depot in a random city has those type of rental services like you don't have to get like all that hard to find like home depot is like i think most people listening would know like like a walmart like a home depot um so it's not like insert really esoteric company doing rentals for farm equipment
0: yeah well and i mean it or like every ag equipment dealership there's like a bunch of mm. companies doing this anyways um and including home depot um and like but it's funny too because like there's also a business model opportunity there right like mm you think about like all these like small businesses and like i'll use i play rugby and like we were just talking about okay we have to get someone to line the fields for one of our game right like you need the stupid little field liner thingy and like you know some guy on like the men's rugby team has that and like they as a service do that um and so that's like how they make money for their team and like that you know that's like a classic example of like this super simple side hustle that is really niche but like yeah like during rugby season on week every weekend, you can be darn sure, and actually every other sports season, you can be darn sure that someone needs their field line. And like mm-hmm. you can kind of charge what you want because no one else is investing in this random little piece of equipment. So, like to translate that to ag, what I think is an interesting opportunity is can you leverage really progressive farm labor contract companies or in the in like the Midwest, like we you've got like um uh, uh, contract harvesters and stuff that, you know, again, provide, provide services. They say, we'll bring our combine in and we'll do it for you. Um, and so can you create more of those custom service companies in specialty crops that both provide a new channel for like the next generation of equipment and other technology, really? and ease the burden of finding people for farms and, like, enable, create a competitive environment, thus improving the conditions of the people doing that work. Like, that, I believe, is, if we're going to shift land use in any way meaningful way, like, that has to be the solution. Um, Mm -hmm. And, like, I think we'll start to see some of it happen.
1: It sounds interesting. The uh, so, so for for a large segment of the people listening in are millennials. Millennials down it really. And then you have a bunch of people who are fifty-five. I don't know who anyone out there who's above fifty-five. Please leave a comment. I want to know what how uh, how you're doing. But uh, so millennials, this is for for them, uh, people listening in, uh, Gen Zers or whoever is listening in, um, and they're seeing an opportunity. I think that's uh, it's really nice to hear an opportunity because sometimes when you if you just listen to the news or just like you know listen to what's out there, it's like there's no opportunity. The world sucks. You know, yeah. just give up. Like there's like it's very doom and gloom. So I, I love that you're saying like there's there's opportunities here to make money and be ethically making money, which I think is nice. Like it's yeah. with the modern generations, I think that matters for a little bit more than like the Carnegie fellows of the past. Um so mm-hmm. for people listening in like that, and a part of the hurdle is getting on the inside so you can start seeing where you could find the rugby line people. Cause like you know rugby, there's a person who knows rugby and they saw that opportunity so they could like translate that over. Um, what would be your advice for people like that? uh to get the hands-on experience or to get integrated in so they can start seeing the opportunities to help out those communities is it is there like is it like a fair thing is there like an association type thing is there like uh how would someone go from like listening like oh it's fun i like food and i want to help feed the world um to get into the point where they can find those those uh opportunities that you just mentioned
0: yeah okay this is a hard thing well i mean honestly like because like you you've got like an edge honestly because you were Grew up on a farm. Like being in 4-H is the ideal way to have street cred in ad, mm-hmm. which is a little silly, I would venture to say, actually. Like it, it it's not, it's not good to be too insular as an industry, which I think ad can be. Um that said, I think again, like there's a no know, <laughs> know that like almost every part of agriculture would love a hustler to work with them anyone who is going to be honest and do good work. Like I would guess that if you cold outreach to, I'm going to, I was going to say 10, I'm going to say 25 to be safe, which is like, to me, I love cold outreach. So like, that's like a safe number. Like if you cold outreach to a bunch of people, someone's going to be interested in hooking you up with something. If you're like honest, you have some skill set, and like, you don't mind like, Doing the work, doing some kind of work, and being humble in your approach to it, and also being eager to learn about your gaps. Like, there's so much opportunity, and so like I'm in tech world. So, there's like startup companies don't have time to usually run effective recruiting processes. Problem is often also they don't have money, so like that's suboptimal for a job. Uh, but sometimes they do have money. And so you can do things like track funding announcements. Um, there's group like newsletters, like Ag Funder News that like cover that really well. Um, and then again, like on the farm operation side, like a lot of folks are on, I think this is an interesting thing, right? Like I grew up in New Jersey and like New York city suburbs, essentially. And like, even like I'm going, I'm going there tomorrow um, to the city to go to a friend's wedding. And like both my sisters are in Manhattan or Brooklyn and like, I, and one is a Gen Z and one like me is a millennial Um, or like she's right on the edge actually. Uh, But anyway, um, and there's like a lot of, so I have a lot of friends and family who are very much like, oh, why would you even like, they think I live in like the country or something and like St. Louis is a city. Um, But like, there aren't very many people who are willing to relocate or like live in different places, which you do practically have to You at least have to spend a lot like there's you can't really remote farm yet um you can do some remote tech work on farms but like you got to be willing to get your boots money and spend time on fields with farmers um there are also if you want to like start with online resources though like i try to make a point of lowering the barrier to entry for people who aren't born on farms to work in ag tech specifically um, and in particular, I focus on underrepresented folks. So like women, people of color, et cetera. Um, and I, you know, that's a factor of like my experience of, of as being the only woman in the room a lot. Um, and so I have like, I have this one resource called the AgTech Toolkit. Like you go to www.agtechtoolkit.com, and like that's free. And it's got a bunch of resources for like, Deep diving into different specific crops, and like we continue to add stuff to it, um, and like a lot of folks, I, again, like cold outreach is not like, the short version of my advice. Always cold outreach on LinkedIn and Twitter always work. Well, doesn't always work, but eventually always works.
1: Yeah, I think the some another just like adding on to it, it's like if if you um if you look at your plate and you see something there that you want to learn more about, like just pick that. I think sometimes people feel like they have to have like uh like how do you start noticing opportunities. Start looking at the world around you and so if, if you're looking at agriculture maybe look at something like just what you already eat or go to a farmers market and see what's being made around you just have like i think cultivate curiosity and ask yourself why a lot like Leonardo da vinci used to have a book where he just would write down like his questions for the day like why does it why does a woodpecker have like a weird like a weirdly uh like a triangle uh tongue he spent the rest of the day just trying to solve that problem but at a certain point when you start doing stuff like that uh opportunities will start coming your way because you'll be really curious and so I think that if you're if you're sitting there thinking like oh cold outreach I'm, I'm like nervous like then then it's like you know what version of it and stuff like that I think look at what you already eating look at your local environment and then just it, like you're saying it, like people are really nice and you for one one reason like, on your on your LinkedIn you literally say like hey you can reach out to me just you know if, I'd really appreciate if you told me why you <laughs> know just yeah. like give me like a little yeah. bit of, give, give yeah. me something so I can have a nice conversation uh which is really nice like you like really re- uh, reducing that barrier of entry um
0: it, it's funny though I was going through my like LinkedIn messages I think last weekend and so now I have like. A like over like and i also i don't accept linkedin requests until i've talked to you but i will send you my calendar so that we can talk and then i'll accept your linkedin request right because mm-hmm. like i just don't it's honestly because i am bad at remembering people so it's like a personal almost using linkedin as like a really broad crm um but yeah so now i'm like deeply underwater in, <laughs> in like calendar invites but it's frustrating because like I truly like I don't care about people's resumes and background like I never did a formal internship in my life like I worked in restaurants and lifeguarded and stuff like I don't care about what you've done necessarily so much as like, you know, I have limited resources and what I do now but like, I care more about potential usually and interactions and intent and so like, yeah, I like definitely be very specific when you call the outreach because it just helps the other party be able to be like oh like you're not right for me but even like i'll have folks reach out and i'll be like i don't think you're right for me i think these three people are right for you and i'll pass your deck to them or whatever mm-hmm. um yeah you gotta be specific
1: yeah i think the, i think taking the other person's uh, point of view and then think what reasons would they say no would all, also helps like when i'm like reaching out to someone i think like why would someone immediately be like not worth my time not worth my time. Like if you're being really vague being very open-ended sometimes it's a nice thing if you're like specific somehow specifically vague is the thing but like like if you can be specific uh and make it really easy for someone to say yes uh it's kind of it makes it hard for them to say no like i think when i get emails for instance like if i if i can tell that you put any like any amount of like noticeable effort into it i will probably respond to you but if you like spam me like i will tell and you just go to the spam folder like i don't i won't even even like you won't, won't i don't remember who you are um so i think i imagine that applies for everybody so for you personally uh is there anything people listening in uh or just in general any help that you need to do what you want to do um yeah i guess i'll I'll start broad there even though i just said uh you know stay away from open-ended questions but um what what help do you need
0: um i Um, So, I mean, like, I'm building my own firm, right? Um, I can't, like, explicitly ask for some of the help that I need because that would be soliciting, so I can't do it. Um, uh, But I am always looking... If you are working right now on technology or you think you might be in the future that changes and improves the future of work in agriculture um, with a focus on food production, but, like, I... Also, am opportunistic, and I do work in row crops sometimes. Very, um, I I invest in early stage, like pre seed stage companies. Um, we do both equity investments, so like standard stuff, um, and redeemable equity, which is like a form of revenue based financing hmm. um, that I think can be more appropriate in certain contexts in agriculture, given the again like the regional service kind of component thing and also the reality that most exits in agriculture come via MA. so they're not so big um so yeah like if you're working on those issues I want to chat if I don't know if you have like a lot of farmer listeners but like to me the most important network I have actually is more on the production side um so like if you think I'm wrong let me know why I'd love to like learn from producers always um but yeah i don't know that's kind of that's kind of my ask i guess today
1: yeah and if there if anyone listening has an idea to solve any of these any of these big you know labor etc type problems I, I imagine you're like the first person to be like i, I want to read that comment uh cool. so if you comment below i will forward it on or um i'm sure like it's not hard to get a hold of you <laughs> Just like
0: yeah literally like <laughs> i, do, I literally check my linkedin messages um mm-hmm. give me like a little context about why what you want um and you don't even don't pay for the like linkedin message feature i mean do if you wish but like i don't care it doesn't have to be that long um mm-hmm. but yeah
1: yeah and then uh so a uh, personal question why rugby you were born in uh like i i don't know anyone you're the first person i met who's uh who plays rugby what what uh drew you to that
0: i actually i played the cross in classic from eastern things mm-hmm. i played the cross in college um and i like i'm extremely competitive like problematically competitive perhaps and I like to the point like I can't be in like a casual gear league kind of kickball thing like I'm gonna be like angry at people for like messing up um and so yeah I found I had a friend here who played rugby and in, in St. Louis who played rugby in college and she said they were competitive and I showed up and they are in fact we have a competitive team and we like practice hard and we played to win and I love that
1: Hmm. Is it is it one of those sports that's like football in in terms of like having to worry about concussions? Or do you guys? I I, I all I, I know actually, is rugby. I exists. can't
0: watch football anymore. No, now that okay. I know how to like no, because technically in rugby, like your the rules are that like you are responsible if you're doing the tackling to safely bring that person to the ground. So like you go down okay. with them. Like you can't clothesline people and stuff like you kind of football and like you don't wear you wear a mouth guard. That's it. Um. So like I think because of that, like also honestly, like, I have, like, some men's rugby teams are s- stupid and do stupid, like, clothesline-y stuff, but, like, women's rugby generally, like, also, like, like we're, like, I'm, like, 29, like, we're kind of old, you know, like, we're not trying to delude ourselves that we are going to be professionals anytime soon, like, you know, like, it's a little more, like, we would like to be able to walk tomorrow, ideally, Um, uh, though I have, like, this time last year, oh, what in September, like, a month ago last year, I, like, fully broke my ankle which was a bummer um so i'm very i'm very appreciative of walking still um yeah i don't know it's so it's like yeah there's like a concussion risk but um i haven't had any issues knock on wood and um yeah i don't know it's like it's not that high of an injury rate relative to other contact sports
1: is it like so i'm familiar with disc golf and how it's kind of raising to someone where you can watch on online yeah. uh for like what you do like disc disc golf type thing is it is it something like that like is there like a, a league where people can like tune in and like cheer you on
0: uh we are not quite so legit that we have like streaming mm-hmm. stuff but like i don't know it's cool like my team is called the St. Louis sabers and like what the, it's actually one of the like first women's specific rugby teams period like independent teams um and like there was like a little exhibit at the history museum for a second and yeah like it's it's just like a, it's you know what's interesting about rugby too is like the people who play are just chiller. like I don't know also this is maybe again like I feel like lacrosse reputationally is a very uh elitist group perhaps um so like I'm comparing maybe extreme opposite ends of the spectrum but, there's something about rugby that's so collegial and even like, you know, it's a social sport. So like, and you know, we're a relative, we're like a D2 rugby team. So like we're a relatively social league, like every now and then Lindenwood university is near her and they have like a very good college rugby team. Like they're all young and fit and recruited and they really destroy us (laughs) when Mm. we play them. Um, But like you play another team and you know, you're like, really you're literally like trying to hit people as hard as you can for the game the match but then afterwards like you hang out together and it's very nice. social and like you're you know like you hit someone and then you help them up like it's a really it's a cool vibe as a sport like it's just i like it a lot it's nice
1: it sounds nice when i, when I played football. And I I would try to help people up that I just knocked down. They looked at me like I, I was spitting in their face.
0: Yeah, no, that's like not, ideally, like, yeah. Is not like that. It's like a yeah. it's like a nice vibe mostly. You know, every yeah. now you know again competition. Every now and then, sometimes you have to get angry at the other person for some reason. But again, like you usually, people get right over it.
1: Yeah, and then uh, so you you have mentioned that you like to uh, mentor and help people in particular that are uh, female or people of color. Um, mm-hmm. being the fact that you. In a room of 10 people you might be like the one one in 10 in terms of like yeah. the female population do, do you have to fight to be heard or anything like that uh in this field like in terms of uh like if you say hey guys i think we should go left are they like oh a woman saying it, and they go right just like you know to be obnoxious or anything or uh is there basically is there other is there is there a level of strategy that you have to implement to make sure that your voice is heard so that you can continue just to just be a great leader that you are
0: um Probably, honestly, yeah. I mean, like, this is like a hard, this is always like a weird question to answer, right? Cause it's like,
1: mm.
0: I'm just doing what I'm doing and like, and yeah. I'm making it work. And yeah, definitely. Like you get a lot of the, like, I say something, then someone else has an idea that is my idea and then we do it. And so like, I could be upset about that. And on certain occasions I like, actually am, yeah. but on another level, like, okay, well if we're doing it, that's great. Um, And like, I am not precious about credit. So, like, that sort of thing doesn't really particularly bug me, I I don't think. Um, but, like, yeah, I mean, there are definitely contexts where, like, fundra- like fundraising, it's much harder to fundraise as a woman, period. Um, and it's much harder, to, and then, like, add on any additional things to that, like, it just gets worse. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is definitely a real, and, like, also... There are still industry groups in agriculture that are like men only. Like that's the only people that's like, okay, well, I can't get into those rooms. And so I don't sweat it too much, right? Because like generally the like I just try to be excellent. And usually people who are also trying to be excellent, and those are the ones who move the needle forward, want that. So that usually kind of helps. But like it's hard. And like sometimes you have to bet about it. And like, I don't know. Like it's it's it could be better. Could be better
1: than it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, Bill Burr is a comedian, and he was asked a similar question. Uh, like a woman asked him, like, "How could women do better in his field or whatever?" And he basically said, "Just become undeniable," versus like do anything else. Like, just be so great at what you do that you make everyone bomb around you. Like when you do like up on stage, yeah. like oh, yeah. people come after you. And I've liked that for an answer. For like, I've liked that as an answer for any time uh, if I'm ignored or whatever. It's like, was I undeniable in how I spoke? Um, at the same time if you if you say something and like two minutes later someone says the same thing you like like personally if some, if we were in a group and someone did that i'd be like i'd like attribute a credit because that just seems like a socially uh rude thing to do uh but you know sometimes it happens on accident but i guess if it's a, a systemic issue like you're it's good that you can let oh, yeah. the, the water roll off of you but like yeah i, I would find yeah, that yeah, like it kind of irritated like she for she you
0: should call it out, like I, and like yeah. i like to think that i am i'm like not really a quiet person like mm-hmm. i will say what i think um yeah. and i like to think that like. When that happens to other people, like I call stuff out generally, like I you know, the I dog don't know that would happen, uh, yeah, yeah, though, so, know, uh, chill. I, I, you know, like I try to leverage my privilege where I have it to make things fair, but you know, it, it's crazy, right? Like the thing is, like, okay, just be excellent, just be undeniable. It's such a double standard because, mm. like what gets so frustrating is when you get stuck organizationally or decision-wise behind a mediocre guy whose yeah. dad is rich or something you mm-hmm. know like so you know like yeah that's the only game i can play because i want to win and maybe we should look at that
1: <laughs> yeah the uh, one of my favorite uh instances of a woman uh standing up for herself in this way so we were in a i will like not name names so i just think it's a really funny anecdote uh she we were in a group and like we were all suggesting ideas to solve a problem and uh so she literally just said hey i think we should go left And like like 10 seconds later a person said i think we should go left and i think no one else like the pause the interval between those two things were so close that people just said, oh that's a great idea and attributed it to the second person yeah and i was really like guys that was actually and, but the woman was like, "Oh, I love it when a guy gets credit for my work." <laughs> and I'm just like, "That's all great." Uh, I it was, it was like, "I just liked uh, it." Was just like the way she's—I don't know if I say it as well as she did, but like the way she did it was just fantastic. I loved it. <laughs> like everyone was just like, "Oh yeah. wow, we did just do that." <laughs> it was yeah. just—I love it uh, when yeah. people stand up for themselves. I think it's a—I uh, like it when people do that. I guess so. Um, but for your for your work, uh, is there one place in particular? I know you have a Twitter, but uh, maybe it is Twitter. And I just uh, spoiled it. But is there one place to stay up to date with everything you've got going on?
0: Uh, I'm trying to be better about my social medias. I hate social media. Uh, but, yeah, I guess Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, yeah, Connie Bowen on Twitter, Connie Bowen on LinkedIn. Um, and I have a newsletter called Agriculture is for People. just a sub stack. Um, I will push something out, actually, probably tomorrow. It's real wonky. You know, like, it's very ag, ag labor oriented. Um, but yeah that's i guess those are like the main areas and like we have mm-hmm. a, our website has frustratingly little on it farm we'll have more presence once we get outside of what uh fundraising kind of stuff
1: mm-hmm. well i think you know if you ever were to do like a conny con I, I'd, I'd go to that you know like I, uh i think it'd be fun you know with all these uh different areas that you're in i bet you could get like the interest there but uh i'll definitely have the sub stack in the show notes. Um, that that being said, I want to be respectful of your time. So Connie, I want to thank you for coming on today. Keep people excited, educating us on the many different issues plaguing the agriculture sectors, but at the same time, highlighting that there's a lot of opportunity here. So thanks so much for being here today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was always, it's always fun. Appreciate it.